Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I'm doing something a little bit different today and I am going to be doing a listener Q&A. Some of you who maybe been engaging with me more regularly on Instagram over the past couple of years will know that I do an Instagram Q&A just in my Instagram stories and it's something that I enjoy doing, just asking asking you to ask me questions and then getting to answer them. But I also admittedly find it quite stressful or quite activating for my nervous system because each question, with each question, there's so much potential to go into so much depth and it's not very always, the answers are not always very clean cut or straightforward because as I always say chronic illness is complex and nuanced and you know my brain really loves to explain all the different complexities and all the different nuance of certain things and it's really hard to do that over just a few little Instagram stories. So I'm trying something different which is to answer questions in the podcast and not every single episode will be a listener question podcast but this is going to be the first of hopefully many to come so these questions were sourced from my instagram account and if you submitted a question and i don't answer it today it's not because i'm not going to answer your question today there were just actually lots of really good questions and i've just chosen a few of them that kind of all fit together in a certain to a certain extent to answer today but I will go back and when I do another one of these episodes I will offer up the answers to some of the questions I wasn't able to answer today so please stay tuned in that regard just to give you a little heads up about what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to talk a little bit about chronic illness and finances as chronic illness is an expensive business for sure. And I just want to touch on a question that was asked about how to manage when you are financially struggling. There was a question about leg pain. Two people sort of backed each other up on this question. So I thought it was maybe important to answer this one. And then a little bit more of a nervous system chat, various questions which had some overlap and um, regarding flares and work stress and how do we know when we're ready to expand our capacity. So that's what you can expect from this episode today. What I'm going to do is just read the questions as they were asked on Instagram and, and then I'll go into the answers. Question number one is, hi Anna, happy new year. I was wondering what you may suggest to those who are struggling financially when they're very poorly. Practitioner prices seem as a whole very high and even higher post-COVID. And access to support seems a privilege some just cannot access. The NHS is generally a huge letdown, as you know, and just wondering how many of those people get on the road to recovery. Gosh, this is actually a big question. And I guess the way I wanted to start off or the place I wanted to start off answering this question is just to validate the struggles because the struggles are real. I have recorded a previous episode on privilege when it comes to healing and finances or financial privilege is one of the things that I mentioned briefly in that episode. And, you know, I spoke about some of my own privileges in my own healing journey, um, which I think is really important for us to acknowledge when it comes to healing, especially when we have social media 
and people almost may be unconscious or may not even be intentional, but there can almost be a little bit of a performative approach to healing. Like, look at me, look how well I'm healing, look at my ability to heal, look how fast I healed, etc., etc. And then others, you know, we, we obviously want to spread the message that healing is possible. But, you know, if we're spreading the message that healing is possible without also sharing the, the privileges or advantages and disadvantages as well that we ha we've had in our own healing journey, it doesn't actually paint an honest picture. So I guess to validate that my chronic illness journey cost me a whole bunch of money. Fortunately, I had savings that I could draw upon in the time that I was unwell. And even though I couldn't work full time when I was at my worst, I was still able to earn enough of an income to cover my my basic living expenses. And and through, I guess, being able to not get into further debt and then have savings that I could use to fund my healing journey, I was able to recover. But it could have been a much more tricky business if the situation had been different. So I think the first place in any kind of challenge is to reach a stage of or a state of acceptance. Acceptance being this is the situation. Just acknowledge the reality of the situation. I'm in a, a challenging place with my health. I don't have a huge amount of financial resources. I don't have a huge amount of energetic resources. I can put my resources into feeling resentment and anger or I can put my resources into finding solutions. And to validate as well that a little bit of resentment and anger is okay to experience, absolutely normal and human to experience. We just don't want to hold on to it forever and let it suck the energy from our healing and the, the solution finding. So once you've kind of moved through that, I guess, grieving process, so to speak, and, and you can listen to my podcast on grief as well if that's needed, the first sort of notes I wrote down was, what can we do for free? And a huge part of my service to this community are my free offerings. So I have a free blog. I have a free podcast. I offer a free workshop. And that's just me. There are many other practitioners out there who are doing the same, who are offering a lot of free resources. And I appreciate that it can be frustrating because there can be a lot for free. But then it can be difficult to know, okay, well, like, there's all this information which is available, which is free, but how do I know what I need to do for myself? And that's where it can be tricky. And that's where it can either be a little bit of trial and error, or that's where you may have the means to be able to save up and then invest in a practitioner just to set you in the right direction. But let's just stay with the, the free resources for now. And what I thought might be really helpful is just to share what I see in clinical practice. So I have all these free resources where I talk about blood sugar, I talk about oxygenation, I talk about digestive health, I talk about the nervous system, you know, endless, endless amounts of information that you can find that I've created on the internet. And a lot of you'll see in my blogs and what you'll hear in my podcasts is no different to what I'm telling my clients to do. So I'm still seeing clients, and I think I've said this on many different podcasts, where sometimes we think we are so ill and there's, we have a complex illness. Therefore, our needs must be really, really complex. 
But what I see time and time again with clients is it's not necessarily that the needs are overly complex, but it's the failure to do the basics consistently. I'm constantly just working with my clients and optimizing their blood sugar. And despite the fact that I talk a lot about blood sugar, because it's something I'm really passionate about, some of my clients will come and see me and it's, you know, they may have even been following me for a long time. And it's not really something that they've ever looked at, or maybe there's a sense of denial that it's not their problem, or maybe even a sense of overwhelm. It's, it's just too overwhelming for them to look at it, which is understandable as well. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is if your resources are limited, don't underestimate the power of getting the basics right. And the basics, as far as I'm concerned, would be making sure that your blood sugar is balanced, making sure that you're pacing your days appropriately, and then making sure that there's some form of nervous system support happening. And I have a free workshop and there's lots of free resources on this podcast in regards to the nervous system aspect. I keep on getting messages from people who are telling me the incredible results they've achieved from just really taking the free resources and implementing them with the same commitment as if they had paid 500 pounds for them. So sometimes when something is for free is we tend to undervalue it. But actually, if we really take the free resources that are available and we treat them like we paid a practitioner thousands of pounds to receive them and we implement them with that level of care and commitment, that can make a really big difference. And that's not to say that you, the listener, are not already doing that. But if it is something that has, you haven't thought of yet, that is something that you could do. So really capitalizing on the free resources that are available and doing the basics really well. And even, in, even, even today, I still know I could pace better. I still know I could look after my nervous system better. And that's with all the knowledge that I have. So sometimes we don't need more information and more support. We might just need to do what we already need to do, what we already know we should be doing more consistently and at a higher standard. So don't underestimate the power of the, what you already know. Additionally, just some other free resources worth mentioning would also be when I did my training, which was a very long time ago now. As practitioners, we had to see a certain amount of clients as part of our clinical training. And those clients came to see us for free. Obviously, at that point in time in my career, I was not anywhere near as experienced as what I am now. But we would also have a, an experienced practitioner to supervise the consultation process. So it could also be worth reaching out to training institutions. I trained at CNELM, but there are various others. ION is another one that comes to mind. And I think there's like a London naturopathic medicine training as well. I can't remember the details off the top of my head. But also, if you are really struggling with practitioner fees, to reach out to training institutions and ask them if they need anybody for case studies, because that, that is usually a free service. The only downside is that you may have to travel, which can be difficult with chronic illness. Usually they make you travel for the initial consultation, but you can do follow-ups online. That all may have changed as well since COVID. So definitely something worth exploring. And then also perhaps considering, depending on your state of health, if you do have any skills that you could exchange for consultation fees. So for example, when I was out in South Africa at Christmas time, my brother-in-law is going through some issues with chronic pain and he's actually offered his doctor who kind of works like a naturopathic doctor 
um, some sort of skill exchange for the acupuncture treatment he's receiving. So my brother-in-law is highly skilled. He's very good with like electrics and things like that. So he's offering a sort of skill exchange for the treatment that he's receiving. And if you do have any skills that, that could be useful to a practitioner that you've built a relationship, that's something else that you could do. But obviously, if you're not well enough to offer the skills, that wouldn't necessarily be an option. Another option is gifting. A lot of my big investments in my own journey were gifts uh, for you know things like Christmas and birthdays. I'd ask various family members to contribute financially towards like a test that I wanted to invest in, something like that. And then finally, just saving up for what matters most. So as I mentioned already, it can be useful to have all these free resources, but we may get to a point where we just don't know what we don't know. And then, you know, investing in the right practitioner for you. And I say that meaning it's just because you may be listening to this podcast. It doesn't mean that it's me. It might be somebody else investing in the right practitioner for you and taking your time to sort of think about who you might work with can be a worthwhile investment because it can help us just to see the wood for the trees when we are in a space of not knowing what is best for us. In terms of, you know, practitioner prices, don't think that this question, you know, mentioned about the practitioner prices in any sort of negative way. She just mentioned that they were high and and had got high since COVID. I also think it's worth mentioning here that at least in the way that I run my business, it's a huge amount of work to see a client. I will only see two clients a day because that's all actually I have time for. So I've calculated for every one hour consultation that I do, it's about three and a half hours of work. And then you also have to factor in breaks. You have to factor in that there's a lot of things you do unpaid in your business as well. So in terms of practitioner pricing, I actually really support practitioners charging what they're worth. And a big, big part of my own healing journey was working with a mentor who made me track the time I was spending in absolutely everything in my business, from answering emails to clients, from answering just general admin emails, administrative tasks, client work, client consultations, the time I spend marketing, you know, all the different uh, things, content creation in the business. And it was a huge task, tracked everything. We sat down, we worked out what my capacity was, how many clients I could take on, and basically, you know, how much I would actually need to charge to make this a real business. And so, therefore, I think I know when I first started my training, the majority of this, the people in my class were women who were almost just doing this as a hobby on the side, not necessarily women who needed to make their income and their to be self-sufficient doing nutritional therapy as a business. And so I think this is what I've seen over time is that a lot of practitioners have historically charged, undercharged for their services because they haven't needed to have a business which can function as a standalone. And as time has gone on and more people with, with varied needs are coming into the industry, you know, single moms, moms with kids, people who are the sole breadwinner in the house, you know, various, all the different dynamics that we can get within families. We have to charge what we have to charge so we, we can earn a living from the job that we do. And it's, I know this wasn't necessarily part of the question and 
this could potentially come across as me being defensive and, and that's not my t- intention at all. But just as a healthcare practitioner is just to, I guess, educate from the other side of the picture, which is what we actually kind of balancing that healthcare is costly. And it's costly because especially from, you know, people in private practice, people operating like myself, because of how much work goes into each person that at least I'm working with. And and some practitioners may work differently. I don't know the ins and outs of everyone's business. But irrespective of that, it is still a privilege. And me needing to charge what I need to charge so that I can earn a, a reasonable, fair income doesn't dismiss the fact that some people may not be able to afford those prices and it might be a privilege for other people to afford those prices. And and it's just such a complex issue within a very broken system because, yes, we do have the NHS and they do an incredible job in acute care. And the only thing is they don't do so well when it comes to this chronic, these chronic cases. But there are actually some some doctors who are doing better jobs than others. So there may also be the option to just change your GP, try a few different GPs, just see what services are available in your area, what other types of support you can get in your area. And yeah, I think just keep on doing the best that you can within your means. There are, of course, no perfect solutions, but hopefully there have been a few little bits that you've been able to take away from me answering this question and at least have something small that you can move towards off the back of this episode, even if it is just going back to what you already know and doing it with more consistency and uh, and a higher standard. So I'll move on to the next question now, which is a question about unexplained leg pain. So the question was, I'm struggling with unexplained leg pain. Where do I start to try and unravel the cause? Uh, And then somebody else had also commented on this, but I think that they have um, deleted the reply, (laughs) so I can't read it. But I'll just talk a little bit about unexplained leg pain. Obviously, any kind of thing like this, always see your doctor as a first port of call so that they can do a thorough evaluation and rule things in or rule things out. When I'm thinking about pain specifically, I'm thinking maybe along the lines of there's an issue with oxygenation. There's an issue perhaps with something like a buildup of lactic acid or there's some sort of neurological issue. Now, if there's a neurological issue, that would probably be picked up by your GP so or a referral to a neurologist from your GP. So I won't go into that in too much detail, but I would just like to talk about, you know, oxygenation and blood flow. You know, we need to have proper oxygenation in the body. So if there is anything going on here, a lot of people with long COVID, for example, experiencing things like microclots. That could potentially be a cause for unexplained pain. A lot of people with long COVID are taking things like proteolytic enzymes, which can help to break down the microclots. You can also think about things that would help with vasodilation, so dilating of the arteries so that we can get better blood flow. So particularly anything that improves nitric oxide. And here, amino acids like arginine and citrulline can be beneficial, beetroot, as well or beetroot juice those types of things could potentially be beneficial in terms of unraveling the root cause 
I'm not sure if this would necessarily show up in something like a full blood count, but I always like to start clients with a full blood count. And if there's any abnormalities in the red blood cell markers, that can usually suggest oxygenation issues. But then we do want to dig deeper and work out what exactly those issues are. And with some people, it can be that they've got asthma or sleep apnea or anemic, to name a few. The other thing which I see in clinical practice is a buildup of lactic acid. So if a healthy person was quite unfit and they decided to run really, really fast, eventually their legs would sort of get quite painful and they'd want to perhaps stop running because of that pain. And that would be caused by a buildup of lactic acid in the body's tissues. And in some people, even if they're not sprinting or running or doing anything like that, they can still have an excessive production of lactic acid. And this is something known as the the Warburg effect. And people with chronic fatigue may be more prone to this build of lactic acid and this Warburg effect. And the solution for this is a ketogenic diet. In terms of unraveling the cause, where I have seen this with clients specifically is in an organic acid urine test. So there may be a buildup of lactic acid in the urine. In terms of other sort of unraveling the cause of this is the, the Warburg effect, you could also just consider doing some blood glucose monitoring and just kind of getting a sense of what your blood glucose is doing generally, but it wouldn't necessarily be a diagnostic evaluation. But it might be worth trialing transitioning towards a ketogenic diet. I wouldn't recommend that anybody throws themselves into a ketogenic diet overnight, but you can look on my blog. I have written a blog on transitioning to a ketogenic diet. I've got a podcast on the ketogenic diet. So all of those could be an option for you to see if it helps with your pain. Other things as well, things just generally speaking, like things to help relax the muscles. So something like magnesium, Epsom salt baths, if you can tolerate it, hot, cold, contrast, stress, so, you know, being in a sauna and then an ice bath, ice plunge or something like that, although that can be very extreme for people with fatigue. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that unless I knew somebody could tolerate it. Um, but all of those could potentially be options um, to support you if you have some chronic pain. And so the next question is around stress. And the question specifically is, hey, Anna, I have a question around stress. It's clear this flares my symptoms, especially work-induced stress. Any tips on what I can do to help with this? I'm already doing a sleep schedule and morning breath work and EFT routine, but still finding I get easily triggered. Is it just a case of keep on persevering with the techniques and eventually your body's bandwidth increases? Thanks. So for this question, you know, we all we all live in a world where we are exposed to stress and when we are exposed to triggers. And essentially what we want to do so that we are triggered less or activated less by the world that we live in is to build our capacity and build our tolerance for stress. And so anybody who's probably been through this chronic illness journey probably started initially in their recovery by reducing the stress in their life. People give up work, people stop intense exercising, people just take on less mental, emotional, physical load wherever they can. 
So in our initial stages of recovery, we're, we're reducing the stresses, we're reducing the triggers so we can hopefully have greater access to the parasympathetic nervous system and then we have more capacity for rest, recovery and repair. But then as our journey continues, we need to start to build our capacity up again. So if we've stripped everything back, as we're starting to become more and more well, we need to almost retrain the body to deal with stress again. So just like a somebody who's mar- running a marathon, they may start out just running, you know, catch to 5K, you know, two minutes on, one minute off, two minutes on, one minute off for 30 minutes. And then eventually over time, they incrementally stress their body more and more and more and more and more until the body can tolerate a full-blown marathon. And I've always said that chronic illness recovery is like being a professional athlete. We have to be stressing the body in the appropriate amount. And then we also have to be supporting the body in all the different ways for rest, recovery and repair. And in doing so, we grow stronger and we're able to tolerate more, we're able to do more, we can experience more of our life. And so with regards to this person's question specifically, she's asked, is it just a case of keep persevering with the techniques and eventually your body's bandwidth will increase? And so if I use this example of a marathon runner again, if a marathon runner is doing their thing, but they get stuck, they hit a plateau, they can't run further than 10k, or they, they get to 8k and they start bonking or you know, whatever it might be, they, they just can't seem to increase how much running they can tolerate. Then we would start to go, hmm, something that you're doing isn't working. You're either stressing your body more than more than what it can cope with right now, or there's not enough time for rest, recovery, and repair. It's normal as we re-enter the world that we'll experience stress. And at times those stresses will knock us back a little bit and cause flares. But our ability to recover from those flares and be able to tolerate more over time is a testament to our capacity. But if there's a situation where the capacity feels stuck, that's when we need to do something different. And this is where I'll talk just a little bit about the nervous system. So I see a lot of clients and they're doing lots of different things to support their nervous system because almost everybody knows now that we need to support our nervous systems in chronic illness recovery. And I'll start off by saying that I don't, I don't believe that there's one way to heal. I think people gravitate towards what works for them and everybody heals differently and everybody finds their own path in healing. As a practitioner, I do my best not to be a dogmatic practitioner. And by that, I mean saying that you know, everybody needs to do things this way, this way, or this way. Otherwise, the healing won't work because I don't believe that that's true. But I still do have my biases based on experience and based on what I see in clinical practice. And so in terms of if the same things are triggering you again and again and again, this suggests that there's been no change in the system. And if we're using techniques like breathwork or emotional freedom technique, those techniques can be helpful for the nervous system in certain ways. So they may help to settle the nervous system. If the system was activated, you may do some breath work, you may do some EFT, then the system becomes more settled. They may help to soothe the system, which is the same as settling, essentially. So you do your breath work, you do your EFT, and then you feel more soothed, and then the system settles. Or 
depending on the nature of the breathwork or even the EFT, there may be some sort of release. So there's maybe like a buildup of activation in the system from the trigger and then you do these, the breathwork or the EFT and then you feel like there's been a release of that tension and then the system settles afterwards. So there's a theme here where these techniques are used to settle and soothe, but they're not necessarily building the resourcefulness of the individual and they're not necessarily expanding the capacity of the individual. So there's a change in the system over time to tolerate more stress and be less triggered by the triggers. And at the time of recording this, I'm just preparing to do the next Getting to Know Your Nervous System workshop. By the time you listen to this episode, the workshop would have already happened because it's due to happen on the 24th of January, but you should be able to catch the replay. And this is something I'm planning to talk about and would have talked about in the workshop. Many people approach nervous system support from a soothing, settling, grounding point of view. And that's step one. But that just helps to stabilize us. But after we've stabilized our systems, we need to grow and build capacity. And therefore, we actually need to learn to work with the activation energy of the triggers. So if, um, if this person says that she's getting triggered from work-related stress, it may be instead of going, oh my gosh, I'm triggered, now I need to do some breathwork or EFT, to actually learn to be with the intensity of the trigger and create a sense of completion. Because a lot of the things that are triggering us are not necessarily related to the trigger itself, but more so related to an old survival response that was stuck in the body that was never able to complete. And so we want to learn to do things that will facilitate the completion so that when we experience that trigger again, the completion has already happened and then we are less activated and less triggered by the same amount of stimuli. So in summary, to answer this question, we, in order to be able to tolerate more work stress, we need capacity in the system. To be triggered less, we need to start to change the system and change the wiring of the system on a deeper level, which goes above and beyond just settling the system when it feels activated, but it's allowing for the completion of the stored survival and defensive responses in the body. Now, this is something that I teach in the Nurturing Resilience program. It's not something that you learn overnight. We spend almost 12 weeks learning to do this because we go very slowly and we have a lot of freeze we need to navigate first before we can even get to this. But if you've been in this dilemma yourself where you feel like you've been doing nervous system work for a long time but your capacity isn't growing, then there's probably a need for some change on a deeper level. And that's something that I can teach you in the Nurturing Resilience program. I've just wrapped up the previous round, which ended the first week of January. And one of the ladies who was in the program said, you know, when you've been ill for a really long time, you feel like you already know everything and you read all this information, you learn all these new things. And you're like, I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this. And she said, this was the first program she's done in a very long time where she's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, that's a different perspective. That's a different way of looking at things. So if you're feeling like you kind of know it all, but you're a little bit stuck, you've been doing these things for a long time, then I would highly recommend that you, at the very least, watch the free workshop and then maybe consider 
investing in the program and then work with me for the next 12 weeks. So that is the answer to that question. The next question kind of piggybacks off the back of that because it's about flares. And this question was, I'd love to also know a bit more about where you start when having a flare, like knowing what things to introduce to support you, when they are so many different ideas around what helps and then also knowing where, sorry, this goes into the next part of the question. So uh, just to kind of recap and saying, just knowing what things to introduce because there are so many different ideas around what helps. And so I have done a whole podcast on crashes and flares. So feel free to listen to that. I think it was one of the earlier episodes. I can't remember the number at this point in time, but you can just scroll through and you'll find it. And here also start by saying a flare can be a normal for your body physiological response to something that is too much. Could be that physically you've done too much. Maybe there's too much mental load on you right now or there's too much emotional load on you right now. And in most cases, it's a combination of all of those things. Too much physical, mental and emotional all wrapped up in one, which often is why we get blindsided by our flares because it's difficult to kind of quantify the collective load of all of these different things that are happening in you know, the complexity of human life. So the first thing I would say is from a flare perspective is to see the flare that is something that is serving you. It's an opportunity to stop you in your tracks, maybe, or at least slow you down so that you can then think and reflect what went wrong. And sometimes we're not going to know the answers, but it is an opportunity for us to learn where our capacity is right now learn where we're still maybe doing too much, where we're still pushing, where we've still got these poor boundaries or the people please. It's really an opportunity to connect with where we are on our healing journey and an opportunity to learn lessons. And many people will go into a state of distress when they experience a flare because they're like, oh my gosh, I've flared, I don't want to flare. And then they can be really unsettled by the flare. And then there's a whole lot of self-blame. Why did you do too much? Maybe self-pity. Why is this happening to me? This is so unfair. Hopelessness. I'm never going to get better. So there's a lot of, there can be a lot of negative dialogue, which is also a reflection of the state that the nervous system is in during the flare. So it's important to understand when you're in a flare and you have all these hopeless and negative thoughts and, you know, you're spiraling. But that's also the nature of the flare itself. And if you can see it for what it is, that can take away some of the charge. That would be the first thing is to find acceptance within the flare and not acceptance in the mind, acceptance within the body. So when we're experiencing a flare, the whole nervous system is very unsettled. And therefore, the first goal is to settle and stabilize the nervous system. And that really is achieved however it works for you. I was speaking a little bit about the Nervous System Workshop and the upcoming Nurturing Resilience Program. You'll learn loads of tools in the program. We cover all of this. But without having been through those programs, you can just ask yourself, what allows you to feel more stable and settled in your life? And it's not about what everybody has written on their blogs about what helps them get through their flares. It's about what helps you with yours. And I'll share mine just out of interest is for the 
the most part, what I would tell myself when I was not feeling as good as I wanted to feel was, how can you be more gentle with yourself, Anna? You might still have X, Y, and Z to do in a day, but how can I go through my day, my to-do list more gently? How can I be more slow? How can I stay more grounded? How can I make today more easeful? And it's just a question of creating space where you can. So taking away the things that are pressurizing you or stopping you from feeling settled and stable right now. Allowing for good food. I know when I eat really well, when I keep my blood sugar balanced, I always feel at my best. Sleep if you can. I know some people don't sleep so well in flares, but then maybe you can rest. You can do some restorative yoga. You can do some yoga nidra. You can have a hot bath if that's something that agrees with you. So how can you create more rest and stability even if you can't sleep? Space, just just the space not to feel the pressure of daily life as much as possible. If you've got kids, if you've got a job, if you've got pets, if you've got people who need you, elderly parents, siblings, that can be challenging. But how can you even create just the, the smallest pockets of space for yourself? In sunlight, if there is, you know, just even sitting in the sun, drinking a cup of tea, with your cat, not speaking about myself, I promise, you know, just these little things, uh, these little things which allow us to resource ourselves. And that's something I talk a little bit more about in the nervous system trainings that I do. But even if you want to listen to the podcast episode, which is somatic tools for chronic pain, that might be a nice one to listen to as well, because when we're flare often there is pain but even if there's not pain there's a lot of discomfort there may be some nice tools in that episode that that will help you navigate that discomfort and then the final part of this question is knowing when it's time to say yes sometimes i get a lot of anxiety around saying yes to activities and social things when i've said no so much like knowing it might be okay but being confident to start saying yes and get back out there and so yes (laughs) yes The challenge is real with this one. And um, I think a few different things. It's um, having the tools to settle your system. So the yes can come from a place of embodied expansion and safety and security instead of a pushing through energy. And it's a tricky one to navigate. And I just think about, well, how would I navigate this if I was sitting down with you and we were having a conversation? And I will probably say everything we want to do, we probably want to do slowly. So you're not saying yes to like a seven night holiday with friends. You may be saying yes to like a coffee date. So we want to start saying yes to things that take us a little bit more into expansion, but it feels like a safe step forward instead of an unsafe, gigantic leap. And then sometimes... We are just going to leap as well because that's like what we are as human nature and there might be a little bit of fake it till you make it and we need to try things. So I don't think that there's any answer that I can give you to this because the answers will be inside of you. But I think the more that you build your connection with your nervous system, the easier that this will this will get because the anxiety is coming from a fear, the fear of what might happen if you said yes to something and it didn't go well. And part of chronic illness recovery is sometimes making decisions and we do things and it doesn't go well, but that's how we learn. 
So there might also be a piece here around making peace with the fact that sometimes things are not going to be perfect, or sometimes we may facilitate a flare or a setback because we've done too much. But I think, you know, working with your sister, saying yes uh, to things that feel manageable, judging the consequences, learning, using that information for next time, gradually there's an expansion over time. So maybe just yes to coffee with a friend would have been a really hard decision. And now that's an easy decision to make. But yes to like a late evening dinner, that might be a really difficult yes. But eventually over time, you may be ready to make it. So that was a bit of a waffly answer, but I hope it just gives you some food for thought and a few little themes to think about in terms of what is the fear behind the yes. How do you work with the body somatically to work with that fear, but also embrace the fact that things may not necessarily go according to plan. So that brings me to the end of today's episode. We're just coming up to 45 minutes, so that feels like a good time to wrap up. If you did submit a question for today and I haven't answered it, don't worry. Um, I'll be doing another one of these episodes soon. I probably will end up doing them at least once a month, but we'll see how things go. Until then, I hope you have enjoyed listening to the answers to these questions and I wish you all a wonderful fatigue recovery.